going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Tina. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Hope you guys had a great holiday weekend. We're almost to the new year. And on December 31st, we are hitting our four-year anniversary of Going West. That is wow. so crazy. Four years of Going West. I can't believe it's been that long. So and it, so many episodes. Yeah, and it's almost our five-year anniversary of meeting. And we only yeah. we only started the show a year after meeting. That's so crazy to me. Yeah. But here we are. It's been a great four years. Here's to four more. And um, I just want to give a quick shout-out also to Melissa for recommending today's case. Thank you so much, Melissa. I had not heard about it before. Um, And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. All right, guys. This is episode 265 of Going West. So let's get into it. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In December of 1991, a bar manager was closing up for the night when she was attacked and murdered by an unknown man. When a bite mark on her chest led investigators to a local patron, he was arrested for first-degree murder. 
But would his teeth impressions be enough evidence to prove his guilt? With the resurfacing of a mysterious note left at the bar the night after the murder, and the testing of certain DNA evidence, all would be uncovered. This is the story of Kim Ancona, a case also called the Snaggletooth Killer. Kimberly Ann Randall was born on December 3, 1955, in Phoenix, Arizona, to Patricia Gassman and John Randall. Now, not much is known about her upbringing, sadly, but we know that she was raised and remained in Phoenix her whole life. And she also had three children of her own, Kelly, Christopher, and Daniel. It can be really hard, you know, covering cases where there's not a ton of information about the victim, but sadly, that does happen from time to time. So considering her obituary states her name as Kimberly Ann Randall Ancona, and no one else in her family has the name Ancona, we can assume that she was married at least once, but her obituary does not include a husband. So it's unclear if she was married at the time of her death, but it doesn't appear that was the case since some news articles state that she lived with her boyfriend in Phoenix. Over the years, she had worked at many bars and restaurants in Phoenix, but in late 1991, 36-year-old Kim was working at a bar in central Phoenix, and it was, it was like a bar and restaurant and lounge kind of place, and it was called CBS, and it's also referred to as CBS Lounge, and it was just a casual place that was located in a strip mall at 16th Avenue and Camelback Road between a shoe store and a video store. Just a block and a half away was Interstate 17, which extends from the middle of Phoenix up to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is just about two hours away, but of course connects to other highways, which as we know can be very problematic in cases, although there are highways everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that can be very problematic. So the CBS lounge was owned by a man named Hank Arandondo, and it was known for its burgers, its hot wings, and sports viewings. But it was even open for breakfast and lunch, bringing in a steady local crowd of people looking for good food, cheap beer, and friendly service, and even a game of pool. Kim worked there, and although we can't say for how long, the Arizona Republic stated at the time that Hank had only owned the bar for over a week. So they were at least newer to each other, but Hank absolutely loved having her. She was friendly, she was kind, and she was really great with customers. The bar closed at 1 a.m. most nights, and Saturday, December 28, 1991, was no different. Kim was closing and actually working her very first night shift as bar manager, so she received a call from the owner, Hank, at about 11.15 p.m., who asked her how the night had been. It was pretty typical for him to call and check in with her around closing time since he took ownership, but particularly this night since she was in a new role and Kim reported that things were slow and she was fine to close the bar alone, which included cleaning the floors and the bathrooms. At around 1 a.m., just around closing time, a girlfriend of Kim stopped by to see her briefly before leaving, and that was the last time that she would be seen alive. Because the following morning, which was Sunday, December 29, 1991, 
Hank arrived at work to a worrisome scene. The door at the restaurant was ajar, which wouldn't have been typical at all since they hadn't opened yet. Now, Kim was very responsible, so he felt immediately that something was wrong, knowing that she wouldn't have overseen something so important. So, of course, just immediately wondering if maybe there had been a break-in, Hank first checked the safe in his office, but there wasn't any money missing. And, of course, like Heath said as well, he has only owned the bar for a week, so he doesn't know if uh, break-ins happen often here or if if he should be worried about this being a reoccurring thing. Yeah, I mean, he would hardly know all the ins and outs of the bar anyway. Exactly. So he's just making his way around the whole bar after checking the safe and his office. So he went to the kitchen, and then he went to the bathrooms. And there, he found something horrific in the men's. 36-year-old Cam Ancona laying on the floor, dead. And what drew him inside was the blood that was seeping under the men's room door. So he saw the blood first, opened the door, and then found Kim clearly murdered. She was naked and had a row of stab wounds across her neck that mimicked a necklace. So there was five in her neck and one in her back with the fatal wound penetrating her lung. How interesting that there's this necklace pattern of stab wounds. Really, really eerie. Haven't seen that before. So there was also many defensive wounds just proving that she had fought very hard for her life. It was determined that she had suffered trauma to her head and neck had been sexually assaulted, and distinctly, there was a deep bite mark on her left breast. And this bite mark is pretty much the entire basis of this whole case, hence the name, as you guys already know. And on her shirt, which was not on her when she was found, like I said, she was nude, her shirt had the bite mark as well, which means that this killer bit through her shirt and into Into her skin skin. and hard enough to make like an imprint in her skin. Yeah, really gruesome. So the murder weapon in question was a knife that came from the kitchen from the bar itself and had been stashed by the killer under the liner of the men's restroom trash bags or trash bag inside the trash can itself. So they did try to hide it, but it was found pretty quickly. Now, alongside it was a bundle of paper towels, which was a poor attempt at covering up the knife. But again, it was found very quickly. Other evidence left at the scene included a bloody shoe print on the clean kitchen floor that Kim had obviously just cleaned hours earlier. Clearly, something only the killer could have left after murdering Kim. Investigators were able to determine that the shoe was made from a Converse brand sneaker, since it had a very clear Cons logo stamped in blood, and that it belonged to a man wearing a size nine and a half. Found on Kim's body were multiple pieces of black hair, which didn't belong to her because she had brownish auburn hair. So, of course, police bagged this. Yeah, it seems like there's honestly quite a bit of evidence here. Yeah, and that is actually what's so frustrating about this case and where it goes, as you guys will see. But but it does, it does help in the end. So, police took countless photographs. They lifted fingerprints, other shoe prints, collected fluids, and more. So they definitely had some things to work on here, and they tried to theorize who this person could have been. When her body was found, there had been two drinks sitting on the bar top that police felt confident must have been poured after the bar closed. 
They were able to conclude that one of the glasses had Kim's fingerprints on them, while the other had fingerprints that were not clear enough to identify or match. Also, like, of course, hers are the ones that are clear, and the other ones are the ones that are unclear. I know. How annoying so is annoying, that? So annoying, yeah. But either way, police began to wonder if Kim had known her killer, and that she had let them in after closing, had part of a drink with them, and then they attacked her, which kind of seems like this is the case since there's two drinks there. And not only was there no money missing from the bar, but Kim's purse, which was in view, wasn't missing any money either. Inside her bag, police looked at her address book in an attempt to find people that she may have known who could have been behind this. There were numerous people's phone numbers inside, including that of a man named Ray Crone. After figuring out who he was, it seemed interesting that she had his phone number because he wasn't very well liked at the bar, though he was a regular who enjoyed playing darts, so she saw him quite frequently. He was a 35-year-old postal worker, so about the same age as Kim, from Pennsylvania that resided in the Phoenix area, and he had previously been in the Air Force and didn't have a criminal record. But there were multiple things that led police to believe that he could have been the one from the start. Despite some people at the bar, including Hank, not taking too well to Ray's personality, like Hank said Ray tended to just rub people the wrong way, whatever that means, Kim had apparently taken a romantrist, er, romantic interest in him. Romantrist. <laughs> according to her friends, which was obviously good information for police because this could be the guy that she was having a drink with if they were romantically involved. Now, especially considering multiple people who worked at CBS had told police that Kim had a date planned with Ray on that very night that she was murdered. So that's big. Now, automatically, Ray seemed like he could be their guy. So now, having a person of interest, they looked further into the teeth marks, the shoe print, and the hair samples. And something that stood out with the teeth mark is the positioning of the two front teeth. So it looked like one of them was a little bit crooked while the other one was straight, which obviously isn't too unique, but it, it does stand out amongst just two straight teeth, you would probably think. So it was also uh, the teeth marks were deep enough to draw blood and the marking was in a circle as if her killer had used their entire mouth to really sink into her chest. However, even though it was made into a circle, there were still very few actual teeth marks that showed up. So you could see you could see the circle marks, but it wasn't it wasn't super super defined. So this is a big problem in this case because you can see, like I said, one of the front teeth is a little bit crooked. You can see how some of the other teeth are positioned, but not enough to be like a super concrete sample. Yeah. But Ray had one crooked front tooth. And again, to be fair, this isn't uh, super uncommon to have one crooked front, front tooth, but it also isn't as common as saying, oh, he also has black hair. This has to be him. Like, this is this is interesting for sure. It's a yeah. little more unique. And it can definitely help, I feel like, in this case. But they didn't even know about his teeth until they questioned him. So when they went to his home, they saw this right away. And Ray denied having any kind of romantic fling with Kim and said that they were simply acquaintances. And even though he thought she had a great personality and he liked that she was kind and bubbly, they weren't in any sort of relationship. And they certainly didn't have a date that night. 
and he also had an alibi. It wasn't necessarily airtight, but his coworker, whom he shared a house with in Phoenix, confirmed that he was home all night and he hadn't left. Now, police argued that he could have left undetected, but his roommate stated that it seemed doubtful as Ray's car was parked right outside his window, and being a Corvette, he definitely would have heard its rumble if he started it up that night. Police searched Ray's apartment and car as well, noticing some beads from the CBS Lounge's shuffleboard game in his car, and also a pair of underwear that appeared to have blood on them. Police asked Ray quickly if he would give them a teeth impression to see if it matched, and Ray didn't have a problem doing so. But they used freaking styrofoam. So not the most accurate method, but I guess that was fairly popular for this kind of thing. The issue with this is that it's not a perfect science, especially considering they're going off of a bite mark and not a model of someone's mouth. So mistakes can absolutely be made but they felt really confident that Ray was their killer based on his teeth. However, they did test other men's teeth impressions as well. In fact, a total of 10 men's impressions were tested to see if any of them matched. And the only one that had a front tooth that was visibly extended further forward than the other was Ray Crone. So on December 31st, 1991, just two days after Kim's body was found, police headed to Ray's home and they arrested him for the murder. So seeing interviews just makes me wonder why people had allegedly not really liked him because other reports say that he was just a totally regular guy and that's what he appears to be. Can totally regular guys be murderers? Absolutely. But let's see how the trial went. So from the start, Ray professed his innocence, but it wasn't just the teeth marks that made him look guilty. As we mentioned, he was a regular at the bar and had allegedly been on his way to a romantic relationship with Kim before her murder. He also had dark hair and a saliva sample put him closer to looking guilty. Now, it goes without saying that there was saliva on Kim's shirt where the bite was, but DNA tests were inconclusive, though they were able to find via DNA testing that Kim's killer had type O blood, which Ray Crone himself had. And this isn't a rare blood type at all, and it's considered the most popular, with 44% of the American population having either O negative or O positive blood. But still, Ray had it just like the killer. So this this really doesn't like, you know, cancel him out of the equation. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, the saliva was inconclusive, that also really muddies the water. Yeah, because that doesn't pull him out either. So a forensic odontologist made an appearance at Ray's trial, claiming that the bite mark on Kim's body and the one belonging to Ray was a without a doubt match. And this felt huge for the prosecution, even though it was the only thing close to being evidence that they had on their side. Because again, there was really nothing else conclusively, concretely marking Ray as the killer. The defense stated, quote, the state has no fingerprints, no witnesses, no DNA, no confession. There's no nothing. The bite mark is very peculiar, but was it enough to put him away for murder? By the way, we did post photos. I urge you all to go look on our socials, our Instagram at Going West Podcast, Twitter at Going West Pod, and we're also on Facebook. Now, it didn't seem like this could put him away, that the teeth mark alone could put Ray away, 
but it was enough. And on August 7, 1992, less than eight months after Kim's murder, 35-year-old Ray Milton Crone was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Kim and Kona. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Before that quick break, we learned that Ray Crone had been convicted of Kim's murder. Now, when Ray Crone was convicted, he was dubbed the Snaggletooth Killer, with prosecutors believing that he liked to torture women and use the method of biting them to do just that. Ray was sentenced to death and sat on death row for years for something he claimed he didn't do. And he was unbelievably frustrated that all it took was for an expert, Dr. Raymond Rawson, to claim the bite marks were his, and his entire life was ruined. Now, something that was shown at trial that the expert created was a video overlay showing Ray's bite essentially morphing into the bite marks from Kim's body to show the similarities. But the defense felt like this video didn't prove that well enough at all, and it actually awarded Ray with a retrial in 1996, so four years after he was convicted because the defense didn't have enough time to review it before the trial. Yeah, and then they didn't have enough time to kind of figure out how to make their argument for this video, which I also will post on socials, and it really does look like it's morphing into it, but you can see the differences and how it is changing as this morph occurs. So here, here he goes with a new trial. 
Yeah, so basically he has a new team defending him at this time, and they're hitting the pavement looking for ways to exonerate him, including looking closer at the hair samples and also other evidence. Now, since we discussed various suspicious connections between Ray Crone and Kim's killer, we must mention that there are also multiple things that don't match, including the following. The shoe print made in blood at the scene was a Converse brand shoe, size 9.5, but Ray Crone didn't own this type of shoe, at least that they could find, nor was this his shoe size. He was actually a 10.5, so a whole size up from the killer's. Also, the hair samples found on Kim's body did not match Ray's sample, as it was coarse and of Asian or Native American origin, which Ray was not. He was a white man. And again, he also had an alibi. So it still felt like such weak evidence to convict him based on bite marks alone, especially since, as we stated earlier, the bite marks found on Kim's body wasn't even a full set. They were only a few marks that were sunken into her skin. So the only real impressions that they claimed were a match were the front teeth, but it still didn't look exact. And a different bite mark expert reviewed for consistencies and actually found that there were no similarities in Ray's real tooth impression with the one found on Kim's body. Something very interesting that came in was a mysterious note less than 24 hours after Kim's murder on the night of Sunday, December 29th, 1991. At this time, police were patrolling the scene to see if her killer would possibly return, and remember this is before Ray's arrest, when they saw a suspicious person. A man in a hood went up to the CBS lounge, but his looks made police worry that he could be her killer, so they quickly approached him. Now, this spooked the man who went running, but not before dropping a blank envelope on the ground and evading police. Now, this is what the note said. You're looking for an Indian about 5'8 to 6'1. I seen him about 3.30 and 4.30 hanging around out back of CBS, about 190 to 210, assuming that means pounds. Get him, please. Black hair, fat looking, blue, and then it's uh, unintelligible, but it looks like S-E-A-N-S, I don't know. I was too far away to make him out good his face. I don't want to go to jail or I would come forward. I have a warrant. So this is basically somebody who is claiming to have witnessed the real killer and he doesn't want his identity known, which is why he's not coming forward, but he is still trying to get this information across, which is amazing. And so he's basically claiming that a five, eight to six foot Native American man with black hair who is on the heavier side is her real killer. And this is extremely helpful and it will be helpful later on. But it's also very unfortunate that that wasn't used in Ray's trial originally. Like, they had this letter, but they didn't do anything with it. Well, the the difficult thing here is that they can't question this guy. So this guy can't take the stand and say why he believes this person is the killer, what he saw specifically. He just states that he saw him hanging out in the middle of the night behind CBS, the bar. So it's not like, like this could mean nothing. 
But this does kind of connect in some ways. We know that the hair found at the scene was black. And we know that due to its biological code, essentially, it is from an Asian or Native American person. And that's who this guy is claiming that he saw. So that that is a connection in itself. Right. It definitely is. You know, and but I think police kind of again, had like this tunnel vision where yes. they felt like they knew exactly who the killer was. So this letter means nothing to them at this point. Exactly. So, you know, obviously in some way, this did seem like a big potential tip. But again, who was the man sending it? And was he even reliable? And since they couldn't question him to confirm this sighting, they really just kind of put this letter to the wayside. However, it was uncovered that there had been numerous altercations at the CBS lounge involving one or more Native American males. And this mysterious man wasn't the only person to claim to have seen a man matching that, albeit pretty basic, description. But someone who had been at the CBS lounge that evening claimed to have witnessed Kim and Kona arguing with a Native American man on the same night that she was killed. They were allegedly arguing because the man had gotten too drunk and she refused to serve him more alcohol. And you would think this information would be enough maybe for investigators to doubt guilt in Ray, but they pressed on with him as their prime suspect. So during Ray's retrial, Dr. Raymond Rawson, who is the bite mark expert on the first trial, still expressed his belief that the bite mark was 100% Ray's. But coming to Ray's defense were four board-certified forensic oncologists who begged to differ, saying that nothing about the bite marks are similar. Not only this, but the FBI testified that the hairs found on Kim's body didn't belong to her, nor did they belong to Ray. However, the jury found 39-year-old Ray Crone guilty once again of first-degree murder, and he was again sentenced to life in prison. Now, after this conviction, Ray stated, quote, I was not there that night. This pretty much rules out any faith I have in truth and justice. Another disappointing part of all of this was that the judge wasn't even sure about Ray's guilt, stating, quote, The court is left with a residual or lingering doubt about the clear identity of the killer. This is one of those cases that will haunt me for the rest of my life, wondering whether I have done the right thing. That's crazy. That like, is cr that's a crazy fucking thing for a judge to say. And to admit to that they don't even know. And obviously this was a, a jury trial, not a bench trial. It wasn't his choice. But still, the fact that he had his doubts, that is wild. It speaks volumes, yeah. But alongside this, one of the doctors that was coming to raise defense, Dr. Suveron, had seen Dr. Raymond Rawson at a conference shortly before Ray's second trial began. Now, Dr. Suveron straight up asked Raymond why he was pushing this ridiculous claim that the bite marks matched Ray's, and why he didn't rethink it and see it for what the other experts did, that it did not match Ray's. And according to Dr. Suveron, Raymond said that he was in too deep as he had already previously claimed that without a doubt, it belonged to Ray, and he didn't want to look bad for going back on such a concrete statement. So basically he's saying, well, now I don't really believe this, but I'm going to look like an asshole if I change my opinion. Yeah, and this is according to Dr. Suvron. I don't know why he has reason to lie. Um, he has come out in interviews consistently stating this, so 
I, I don't know why he would lie. I feel like he's probably telling the truth. Yeah. But, I mean, fuck. Yeah, and of course, you know, to no surprise, Raymond Rawson claims that this conversation never took place. But he's likely just saying that so he doesn't look even worse than he would have if he simply just told the jury in the second trial that he made, you know, a mistake. Yeah, I totally agree. So years passed, you know, despite this, years passed with Ray behind bars, still working hard at getting himself out of prison and proving his innocence once and for all. But it wasn't until 2000, so nine years after Kim's murder, that a new Arizona law would help him do just that. This new law stated, quote, any person convicted of a felony offense may file a petition for post-conviction DNA testing with the court where the conviction occurred. DNA testing obviously had come a long way over the years since Kim's murder. So when Ray learned about this new law, he knew that it could help him because there were multiple samples of DNA collected from Kim's body back in 1991, including that uh, saliva DNA that we discussed where a match could not be concluded with. So the following year in 2001, nearly 10 years after Ray's arrest, the defense team working with Ray put in a formal request with the state of Arizona to have all the DNA found on Kim's clothes and body tested for DNA now that they have the new technology. And again, the saliva was inconclusive, though there were blood stains on her pants that the defense team pondered could belong to her killer. And this is when things really broke open. Ray's family had believed in his innocence from the very start, even remortgaging their home to pay for all of his legal bills. And they were finally going to get their son back because in April of 2001, blood was found on Kim's jeans that did not belong to her, nor did it belong to Ray. And this was huge because whoever would have bled on her pants had to have been involved in her murder. So that DNA was entered into CODIS in hopes of matching with someone whose DNA had already been there, like someone who had already been convicted of a crime. And there was a match. The blood found belonged to a 35-year-old man named Kenneth Phillips. And this is crazy because, you know, not only was he a Native American, which is consistent with the hair found on Kim, but he also lived just 600 yards from the CBS lounge at the time of Kim's murder. And when this was all being discovered, he was serving time for sexually assaulting and choking a seven-year-old girl, which occurred just a week after Kim's death. But wait, there's more. When Kim was murdered, Kenneth was on probation for breaking into a woman's apartment, choking her as well, and then also threatening to kill her. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is huge. I mean, massive. So inside the men's bathroom, investigators lifted multiple fingerprints. Ray's didn't match any of them. But this was a bit tough because this is a bar, for crying out loud. So there's, you know, there's going to be dozens of people going in and out of there on a regular basis. But insanely... Kenneth Phillips' fingerprint matched a clear print that investigators had lifted years earlier, so when the crime was originally committed, and when they questioned him about his involvement, he didn't even deny it. Kenneth told police that the morning after Kim's murder, he woke up after a blackout, induced by alcohol, he says, to find blood all over his hands. 
And when he saw that a woman had been murdered at the CBS lounge right next to his house, he wondered to himself if he had been the one to do it. Not only did his fingerprint match, his hair matched and his blood matched. And his shoe size was a nine and a half, just like the bloody footprint from the kitchen. And I'm sure, as you all are wondering, did his teeth marks match? Yes, they did. Kenneth Phillips also had his left front tooth protruding past the other because not only were they slightly crooked, but just like Ray's tooth, it was, you know, crooked and leaning uh, slightly forward. Yeah. So same thing with uh, Kenneth's, but Kenneth's was, it was much more distinctive and it was a clear match. And remember earlier when we mentioned multiple witnesses claiming to have seen a Native American man hanging around the CBS lounge? With the first leaving a note about seeing someone hanging around after hours, feeling confident that he was Kim's killer, and another stating that a man with the same description was seen arguing with Kim on the night that she was killed? Well, now that all clicks with Kenneth Phillips. With this information, in April of 2002, Ray was exonerated and released from prison immediately after spending over 10 years for something that he truly had no part of. Four years later, after Ray filed a lawsuit for his wrongful conviction based off opinion and not scientific evidence, the city of Phoenix, Arizona was ordered to pay him $3 million. Not only did he spend all that time behind bars as an innocent man, but while inside prison, he contracted hepatitis C had his arm broken, and also was stabbed by another inmate, which is so, like, oh, man. like It's so sad, honestly. It's so fucking sad. So after his release, Ray moved back to Pennsylvania to be near his family, and he continues to advocate for DNA testing and speak out about his experience and the injustice that fell upon him. And funny enough, he had also gotten his smile straightened after being featured on ABC's Extreme Makeover, which is basically like a reality show. Kenneth, on the other hand, got exactly what he deserved. Kenneth Phillips had been arrested for the assault on the seven-year-old girl just three weeks after Kim's murder and was still serving time when he was found to have killed Kim. Once they concluded that multiple blood samples belonged to Kenneth, that his fingerprints were on the men's restroom's condom machine and the interior door of the CBS lounge, and when the bite mark was an even better match than Ray's, they had more than enough to get Kim's real killer. And in 2006, nearly 15 years after Kim passed, Kenneth was indicted for first-degree murder and sexual assault and pled guilty to both charges. He was sentenced to life in prison and 28 years for sexual assault. Although Ray won't get those years back, it seems that he's on a happy path now and Kim's family and children have a pinch of justice just knowing what really happened to her and that her real killer is behind bars for good.
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. It's always so sad to research a case where somebody is wrongfully convicted for so many years. But I'm just so glad that they finally figured out who did it so that Kim's family can rest with this information. Just such a crazy story. Yeah, and I can't blame him for going back to Pennsylvania. At this point, he's probably like, fuck Arizona. (laughs) I know, I wouldn't go back either. Seriously. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you again to Melissa for recommending this case. Hope you guys have a good week leading up to the new year and our four-year anniversary. We'll see you in a few days. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.